couple of years ago, I had the privilege and a responsibility of uh, asked to serve on a leadership group in our denomination. Maybe some of you don't know we even belong to the denomination. We're an autonomous church, basically, meaning we uh, self-govern, we own our own property, we call our own staff, we do all those things. But we choose to associate with, another, with a group called the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches. And part of that small group of churches, 40-plus churches in the Midwest and spread around, is uh, we have an elder board. And that elder board, the role of the elder board is to, is to give spiritual oversight to the churches in our denomination, particularly as they're credentialing new personnel, things like that. Uh, but I found out as I was asked to serve on this a couple of years ago that one of the main things we do sometimes is to deal with church issues. Like churches never have issues, of course, but... I found out, uh, and I knew this, you know, I wasn't naive enough to think that that wasn't true, but I found out an inordinate amount of our time is spent uh, dealing with uh, with problems in the life of the churches and from a leadership perspective or different things like that. And so often what happens is, as I see this, and this is uh, something that's ongoing all the time, it seems to be that so often what happens is when that happens in the life of a church, the church kind of stalls. You know, we're talking about unstoppable, and that's really, as we look at the book of Acts, is going to be talking about the church, the early church, and not only the early church, but there's churches in our world today that have that have uh, uh, this this momentum going in their life. They're almost unstoppable in regard to have, they have barriers, things come up against them, uh, problems, but they have this unstoppable force in their life, and it's called the Holy Spirit working through them that allows them to do some things that so often we, sadly enough, in the world today we see uh, not happening in many many churches. Uh, the the fact is, eighty to eighty five percent of all churches are either plateaued or declining. That's not unstoppable. That's pitiful. Okay? Uh, and that's not the way God wants us to be. And, and, and I was uh, a few months back, or actually for a long time, I've been uh, really just uh, reading the book of Acts. The book of Acts is one of the most incredible books. It's one of my favorite books in all of Scripture. And I began to ask, you know, when, you know, I'm, I'm thought, thought about teaching about this for several years and finally came to the place and said, okay, let's, gonna, let's go for it. And, uh, I, and I was a little frustrated because looking at our time frame and what we have planned for the fall as we're doing uh, Financial Peace University, we're doing uh, Project Freedom, and I'm going to preach through the book of we're going to preach through the book of Galatians during that time. I realized it's impossible to cover 28 chapters in the book of Acts in the next eight weeks. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to break it into just we're just going to look at the first five chapters of the book of Acts during this part. And then sometime later next spring, we're going to come back and do the next section of Acts probably. And we're over the next two years, my goal, one of my goals is to help us to go through the whole book of Acts. But we're probably going to break it into about four components because it actually breaks down that way. So this first next eight weeks, I would encourage you to do something. I would encourage you to take this book, the Bible, and read it. You know, there's some things I can do for you, I can teach you, but I can't read the Bible for you. I can't do your prayers. I can pray for you, but I can't do your prayers. Only you can do those things. And if you want to, to, to become an unstoppable force like the early church was, you need to understand what God's Word says and actually do it. And so I'd encourage you, you know, just over the next few weeks, uh, one of the things I did in preparation for this is I read uh, the first five chapters of Acts uh, in multiple different translations. You have access to that online. 
All of you do. If you have a computer, you have access to things like uh, UVersion, uh, uh, BibleGateway.com, uh, all kind of things that are out there that you can read the Bible in. And I would encourage you to do that. So this morning, we're going to start our study of the chapter of, of Acts chapters 1 through 5. And today, we're going to study, it's not going to be even all the time. This, today, we're going to look at chapter 1, the whole chapter of Acts. And we're going to talk about what some introductory things that's important for us to understand. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I would encourage you to pull them out. And I encourage you, if you don't have it, bring it next, next week. If you don't have one, we've got Bibles in the back. You can pick one up off the table. You can even keep it if you want it. If you need a Bible. So we encourage you to do that as well. So before we do anything else, before we look at God's Word, let's pray. God, we turn to you this morning. We ask you that you would not only help us to understand the truth of Acts, but we'd ask that you would help us to, to learn how to apply the truths of Acts in such a way that it becomes a part of how we live. That the couple of simple things in the first chapter of Acts you want to teach us this morning would be so, so incredibly clear that we would never be satisfied to simply be Christians who just come to church. But what we do is when we go through the process of, of in a real sense of, of, of learning God about what it means to be a believer, and we be so, have a desire to, to live within the power of your spirit, to understand in a real sense that living a Christian life is not best about going to church and going through some motions. But it's about being a, a people on mission. And that mission means that we're a witness. And that witness's, witness's power is not through programs, it's not through formulas, it's, it's through the power of your Holy Spirit. And in doing so, God, it, your Spirit enables us to do things and say things that we have never been able to say or do before. Because it's not about cleverness. It's not about simply about learning even. It's just about dependence upon you, God. And so we thank you, God, for what you will do as we not only understand, but we apply the truths of your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this morning, it's really easy to do the, the Acts. Acts is, is really itself, it, it's, it gives you the introduction right in the middle and the start of it. So if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to go through the book of Acts and I'm going to read through the first chapter as, and talk about it as we go along. Uh, and uh, talk about the, the the acts of God's people. Uh, really, really, the book of Acts could be called the acts. It's called the Acts of the Apostles, but really could be called the Acts of God's people, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what really is kind of the the, the thing that we see there. And the outcome that I hope as we go through these first five chapters, and then over the next couple of years, go through the whole book of Acts. But I think it can begin right now. The outcome, I hope, for us is this, is we will have a fuller, you will desire to have a fuller and greater participation in the only mission that's worth living and giving your life for. And I say that with all seriousness. The only mission worth living and giving your life for is the mission that Christ has given to us. And so often what happens is, is we substitute it for other things. And because of that, our life is not all that God wants us to be. I mean, how exciting would it be to be a part of the mission that's worth giving your life for? And we can be a part of it. God calls us to be a part of it. And so let's begin the, the, the first part of Acts and we'll just look through it and I'll talk about some things. And hopefully uh, some of it won't be boring because some of it is introductory information, but it's, it's important. So in chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 1, and I'm reading from the New International Version, it says this, In my former book, Theophilus, 
I wrote all about the Jesus began to do and to teach. Uh, the former book he's referring to here is, the, is, is what? What is he referring to in Acts? He's referring to the former book that he wrote. And the guy that wrote this was Luke. And who was the former book? It's the Gospel of Luke. It would be easier in Scripture. It would make more sense from a flow standpoint if it was laid out Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, John, Luke, then Acts, because Luke and Acts kind of go together. But for some reason, I don't know why, can't answer why, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts. But, but Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts as well. And if you take those two, those, the Gospel of Luke and Acts, and put them together, literally it's almost 25% of the whole New Testament, the volume of the whole New Testament. So he had a huge influence in the Bible. And then it says in my former book, Theophilus. Theophilus is a, is a, is a given name. It's a name, it means lover of God. And no one knows exactly who Theophilus was, but many things people think maybe he was a patron, a person who uh, allowed, who uh, gave some resources to Luke to allow him to be freed up to spend some time writing the Gospel of Luke and this account of Acts as well. So it would make sense in regards to what's going on here that he would address Theophilus and say, hey, thank you, Theophilus, for giving me this time. Uh, here's, here's some information. And then he says this, he says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. It's, it's basically this, it's, it's gonna be real simple in the book of Acts. It's just the facts. All that Jesus began to do and to teach. He just reports it, uh, in, in a real way. And then in verse two, he says this, until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. In the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the followers of Jesus, these guys were called disciples. But when you get to the, to the, to the, uh, to Acts, they, they're called apostles. And disciples basically means students or learners. And that's sometimes we call ourselves as followers of Christ, disciples, right? I'm a disciple of Christ. You're a disciple. If you're a follower of Christ, you're a disciple. You're a learner. But for some reason, the name was changed. And now they're called apostles. And the word apostle literally means sent out ones. It means persons who have a special mission, a special calling. And there's multiple ways of looking at that in Scripture. But basically, when we think of apostles in Scripture, number one, we think of the 12, who were originally the 12 basic uh, disciples of Jesus Christ who became the foundational leaders, the ones who were sent on a special mission. And something about Luke as well, let me share about him a little bit as we have this introductory part. Luke is the only Gentile writer of Scripture. All other books of Scripture, everything in the Old Testament and the New Testament, other than, than the author, than Luke's writings in Luke and Acts, is written by Jewish authors. He's also a personal participant in the story. It's not just he's writing from a distance. He's involved in the story in, in the book of Acts. And it's, it's in Acts 16.10, he changes the, the way he writes to the first person plural where he begins to use the word we. He's involved in this. And it's suggested that Luke was probably a convert of one of Paul's missionary journeys Maybe he was saved in Troas and maybe began a journey with Paul and he was as a faithful friend of Paul. Also over in Colossians, they, he's referred to as the beloved physician. So we know he's, he was a doctor in that day. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, it says that Paul, when he was in, that when Paul was in prison, he says that only Luke was with me. 
He points them out as a special, loyal friend. So we see all these dynamics here going on. And as we go through the book, uh, these books, the first part is about Peter in the early church, then about Paul later on as we talk about it, not in this series, but a later series. We understand all these things are at work. Now, the content of the book of Acts, as we read through it, is objective. It means this. It means that even though Paul, uh, that Luke was a friend of Paul, he shows Paul as Paul really is. With his conflicts, with his warts, with all the stuff that's going on. He objectively reports what's going on. He even re- records the division in the early church. He shows, you know, so often I've heard this, you know, we need to be like the New Testament church in Acts. Like the New Testament church in Acts was perfect. No, it's not. Let's do something together this morning. Let's practice. There is no perfect church. Now say that. There is. Okay, now I'm not going to tell you to just say the next part because I'm in it. No, you don't don't have to do that. You know, if it was perfect and you showed up, what it would mean? You'd be imperfect because none of us are perfect, right? It's made of imperfect people. There's no perfect church, but the church in Act was an church in Acts was an unstoppable force. They had they were they were they were empowered in a way that so often we seldom see in our world today. That's why I'm so excited when I study the Book of Acts to learn from it. What's the difference between that church and so often what we see today? Because God calls us to be that kind of church. Also, the content of the book of Acts is accurate. You know that 100 years ago, there was a British scholar named William Ramsey who set out to to disprove the historical accuracy of Acts. And in the process of trying to disprove the historical accuracy of Acts, guess what happened? He became a believer. He was not a believer before that part. He became a believer, and he became one of the greatest proponents of the historical accuracy of Acts. He said, you know, the things that are in there are accurate because if you read the book carefully, you will discover that Luke was incredibly attentive to the historical details. Now, the title I've already told you is called The Acts of the Apostles. Some people say it should be called The Acts of the Holy Spirit. I would say that it should be called The Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And the theme of the book, it's really interesting. So often in seminary, when I was in seminary, we'd sit around and talk about for hours the themes of the book. You know, what is the deeper theme of this book? Well, let me tell you what the theme of the book of Acts is. The theme was what happened. That's it. What happened? The theme of of the book of Acts, Luke is just simply reporting what happened. As he sees things. Matter of fact, if you'll, the date of the book is around 62 to 64 AD. And if you read to the, chapter 28, you get to chapter 28, something weird happens. Uh, if Paul is spending two years in prison and then they're like, boop, that's it. And you're going like, Luke, finish the story. But he's writing about what happens. And that's one, that's why we know the, the, the time of it is because that was, that's where he was. And I guess he wanted to get his paycheck at the office, his patron, and he said he wanted to finish this up and get on with life and go back to his patients who were all in the waiting room. And, you know, he was doing all this stuff. And, and, and he goes on, and so he stops the book of Acts at chapter 28 because it's about what happened. It's not about a complete story of everything. It's about what happened during this period of time in the life of the early church. So that's the first couple of verses. You're going like, man, we're going to be in this forever. No, we're, now we're going to speed up, okay? Verse 3. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. 
He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. What Luke is saying here, there's, there was, he's saying that there's this incontrovertible evidence uh, that would stand up in court about what happened to Jesus Christ, that he really was uh, crucified. He really was resurrected because if you look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, it says that over 500 witnesses told about or, or understand or uh, witness that Jesus was risen. They have this, you know, how many witnesses did it take in court to make something true? You think 500 would do? And he says, there's this witness, there's this evidence. He said, after his suffering, that's what happened. They were convincing proofs. And then he appeared to them, all of these people, over a period of 40 days. And he spoke about the kingdom of God. He, he, this is uh, just after the, the, the things that happened in Luke. And then in verse 4, then on one occasion, this is an important thing, so focus on this for a moment. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, Jesus was eating with them, he gave this command. And underlined the word, gave this command. It was not a suggestion. You know, it wasn't like, guys, you know, this is what I'd like for you to do. If you think about it, if you can put it on your calendar, if you, this is a command. Jesus didn't give a lot of suggestions. Because this is the Son of God. He said, he gave this command to these, the guys that were waiting, these, 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 these apostles. He says, do not leave Jerusalem. But wait, but wait for the gift of my father promised, which you have heard me speak about in verse five for John baptized with water. But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Luke records here that what Jesus told these early guys right after, you know, after he appears to them after his resurrection, he's back there and he's appearing to them. His instructions are, hey, guys, don't get started with the mission right away. I want you to do something. I want you to wait. And I want you to wait for something that you need so you can accomplish what needs to be done. Wait. Do nothing in regards to the mission until the Holy Spirit comes. And what Jesus was telling them, and this is what we find out to be true, is that our mission, the mission that God has given us, is impossible without the Holy Spirit. At best, we'll do it kind of haphazardly, and we'll be anemic. We will not be unstoppable. We'll be kind of, uh, you know, stalled. He commanded them, not a suggestion. Now, the question here this morning when I say that, and we're going to read part of this, the answer kind of the question I'm going to ask is this. He, Jesus gives them the command to wait. The question is, did they follow the, did they, uh, did they wait? These apostles, these early guys, did they wait? I want to skip a few verses and we're going to come back to them later. I want to go over to verse 12. In verse 12, uh, it begins to, it, for the, through the end of the chapter, it kind of answers this question, and it, I, I kind of answers this question about, did they really follow what God's plan was? Because remember, once again, what was Luke's purpose in writing this? Just to record what happened. He's not making a lot of commentary on it. He's not doing anything else. He records what happens. And in verse 12, it says, you know, after these guys, some stuff happened here. Jesus has told them to wait. It says in verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. Now, a Sabbath day's walk, you're going, what's that? Well, in the Old Testament, when Israel was encamped in the wilderness, um, the furthest tent from the tabernacle, which is their place of worship, was about 3,000 3, um, feet. And because you were not allowed to do work on the Sabbath, they, they said, well, a Sabbath day's journey. They want to make sure everybody could get to church without breaking the Sabbath law. So a Sabbath day's journey was about 3,000 feet, or if you're in Canada, a kilometer. 
It's about what I understand. I kind of figured that out. Couldn't figure out what a kilometer was. I kept going up there, and we were driving up the road, and it said, so far, 100 kilometers. It sounded like, wow, it's a long way there. Oh, it's not as far as I thought it was. Because I'm thinking about miles, but it was about a kilometer. And so that's what it's about, a Sabbath day journey. So he walked, he says, they returned to Jerusalem from the hill, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And in verse 13, when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. They're so far, they're doing pretty good with the weight thing, right? They hadn't done anything yet other than just kind of go back to where they were. And those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, John, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Now, if you add them up, that's how many people? Eleven. Remember, there's originally twelve. And it says Judas, uh, son of James. This is not the other Judas. Judas Iscariot was the one who, who uh, betrayed Jesus, and he's no longer around. And then it says this, and it's, it's one of the keys about the early church. They all joined together constantly in prayer. One of the things that you will find over and over and over again in the book of Acts is this whole thing, is this, this, this thing about how these people were together. It doesn't mean they were like robots or anything, but they were together. They were on mission. And because they were together and through the Holy Spirit working in their life, what happened was is that they were unstoppable in a real sense. They weren't fighting each other all the time. I mean, sometimes they had some disagreements. You'll see that in Acts as well. But they had this basic purpose. The idea that they understood in the early church was this. We can't do this by ourselves. We are all in this together. In America today, the problem, one of the problems that we have, we have this me mentality. It's all about me. But in Acts, it was not about me, it was about we. I want you to keep that in mind. If you write down maybe one key, maybe one of some key facts today, it's not about me, it's about we. That's one of the keys to the church that God calls us to be a part of. And when the Spirit is in us, we, uh, we are together in things and we can work out our differences because we have this power within us to overcome some dip problems that we have in our life. And that's what the early church had here. So, so far they're doing pretty good with the waiting thing, though. They haven't done really anything else, have they? And it says they all join together constantly in prayer. And then it says, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. You're going like, well, I thought, I always thought Mary was a virgin. When she had, well, she was when she had Jesus, okay, in Scripture. But then, Scripture tells us very clearly that Mary had, uh, Mary, you know, she had this husband named Joseph who never kind of plays any kind of role much except kind of leading the donkey around and stuff early on in Scripture. And But they, after Jesus was born, then they had children of their own. And for a, for a period of time, it says that Jesus' own brothers and sisters didn't believe in him. I mean, wouldn't that be a bummer? Some, son of God, you know, your own sisters and brothers don't believe in you. But it is, we do see here now that they are following him. Then we get to verse 15. This is the question I asked you a while ago. Did they wait? Did they wait? Did they do what Jesus told them to do? The one thing he told them to do. It wasn't like he gave them a whole laundry list. He only gave them one thing. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes. Verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. Remember who Peter was. The Holy Spirit had not come yet. Peter was still Peter. Okay? Impatient. Impulsive. A leader, but, you know, not, you know, sometimes it got, sometimes leaders can shoot themselves, their strengths become their weaknesses as well. 
Okay? So this is Peter. And then in verse 16 it says, and he said this. Okay, Peter stands up amongst all the ones who are gathered in this room. And he says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled through the Holy, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. And then he says this, with the reward he got for his wickedness, which he, remember the pieces of silver, Judas bought a field. Well, literally Judas didn't buy the field. Remember he threw the money at the, the feet of the, of the religious leaders? Actually, what happened was, is the religious leaders said, we can't do anything with this. This is blood money. We can't use it, put it back in the church treasury. So what we'll do, we'll do something with it. So they went out and bought a field. But it was, it was used by the money. It was bought by the money that was given to Judas for betraying Jesus. And then it says this, when he got, got the, Judas bought a field, there in this field that was bought by this blood money, he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all of his intestines spilled out. Ooh, that's terrible, that's kind of nasty, isn't it? It's what it says, that's in scripture, I didn't make that up. The problem is, the problem is, there's, there's debate about this, because some people that know scripture are going like, well, doesn't it say over in Matthew? That Judas hung himself? Yeah, it does. And so, how do you reconcile that? Really quick side note here. Which is it? His body burst open or he hung himself? Some Bible scholars say, would say that he hung himself on the edge of a cliff. The rope broke. He fell down the cliff on the rocks and and, and his bowels burst open. Okay? That's what some scholars say to try to reconcile the two problems there. Some scholars suggest, and they look back to the Greek meaning of, of the word here that's used, that he, that the word here in Greek is the word suicide, that he committed suicide, that, that, that uh, Judas committed suicide. And then when, it, when the Bible was translated from Greek into English, and what was the first Bible that was done that it was called? The only Bible. No, no. King James, okay, long time ago, 1600s, okay, or 15, uh, okay, late 15s, early 1600s. The thing is, is that um, some people say that when it was translated, the Bible was translated into English, the common form of suicide back then when it was translated was hanging. And so it was translated hanging in Matthew, and then they did something else that was more descriptive over in, um, in, in uh, Acts. The reality was in Bible times, the common way of committing suicide, if you just need to know this, was to fall on your sword. You see that in the Old Testament with Jonathan and Saul. And, and that was a kind of, so with kind of like your intestines would spill out. That was kind of the deal, okay? Just to be graphic, okay? But the issue is, is that uh, I've done extensive study about this, and I tell you, I don't know. I don't have a clue. All I know is this, that he committed suicide. Ju- Judas committed suicide. So could, Judas was not around anymore. That's the point. The point is not whether he hung himself or whether he, you know, did something else. The point was, is that Judas is no longer around here. And there's, there's only 11 of these apostles. And so, and so in verse 19, it says, everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language, Al-Kadama, that is filled with blood. Then in verse 20, uh, Peter makes a defense for what he's about to say. We need to do something. Remember, what was he supposed to do? Wait. Just a moment. I just waited a moment. Okay. The thing is, in verse 20, he says, For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, 
May his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. It comes out of Psalm 69, 25. And may another take his place of leadership, talking about this person who's not no longer there. That's out of Psalm 109, 8. Peter makes a case based upon Scripture that they need to do something to replace Judas. Because in the Old Testament, the family of God was from what? Twelve tribes. And now in the New Testament, there was twelve foundational leaders. There's kind of like this thing about uh, symmetry here for, for Peter. I mean, for, uh, yeah, for Peter and what he's trying to talk about here. He says we need to keep the foundation whole as we go forward. And then he says in verse 21, Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. And you're going like, well, what men are we talking about? Because I, there were just 11 of us? No, actually, if you look in Scripture, <clears throat> excuse me, over in Luke 10, 1, it actually mentions there were 72 disciples in the early church. There was just 12 key ones, and then there was 72. So out of the 72, the other guys, what we're going to do is we're going to choose one. And then he says this, uh, it's necessarily we choose one. Then in verse 22, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, from, for one of these, uh, must become a witness for us. Remember the word, the word, uh, apostle is the one who is sent out as a witness, uh, become a witness for us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men. The first guy had a bunch of names. His name was Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice. So they're going like, eh, I'm not sure about that guy, too many names. And the other guy was named Matthias. I don't know if that's what they thought, but I'm going like, man, if we don't, God doesn't have like aliases or something. I don't know what the deal is here. But one guy had one name, Matthias, another guy had multiple names. And said, so, okay, let's, let's do it. The, let's do it the right way. Let's pray about it. So they prayed about it. Verse 24, Lord, you know, everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left, left to go where he belongs. Verse 26, then they cast lots and the lots fell to Matthias, the guy with only one name. And so he was added to the 11 apostles. Now, I'm not going into what the casting lots was, kind of like throwing dice, blacks on one side, white on the other. Throw the, no, black means no, white means yes, black and white means do it again. That was kind of the deal with the lot thing. But basically, that's what was going on. Now, the question is, going back to what Jesus told them to do, to wait, there's a debate about this amongst people. And the question is, should they have done what they did because jesus told them to wait he said wait do nothing else attempt nothing without the holy spirit and some people say they shouldn't have done that and lucas uh, but remember lucas just recording what happened and the reason is some people say that he shouldn't have done it is because we never hear from matthias again the only place in scripture he's ever mentioned is right there and they're going like, well, man, you know, you know that was the shows that he, he wasn't a guy. He didn't do anything because he really isn't supposed to be there. But there's an argument that says, well, you know, uh, there's some other apostles that we really don't hear anything about after this either. Not all of them do we hear something about. So, I mean, I don't know that argument holds up uh, as well. And also there's this guy named Paul. And Paul says, Paul kind of thought he was supposed to be the guy that was to be the extra apostle because he said, I was an apostle born out of time. It's what it says in Scripture. He says it about himself. But other people say, uh, well, you know, um, there's nothing in the text that says they were doing anything wrong. And so after careful study, my verdict is, I don't know about that either. You're going like, man, this is inspiring today, isn't it? But you know, it doesn't matter because it's a minor point that really doesn't matter here. 
So often in the church we'll debate minor points that really doesn't matter because I think Satan's greatest tool is to get us to focus on something that really doesn't matter so that we can be distracted from the main thing that we're supposed to do. I do know this, though. I do know this. That the only reason that you and I are still talking about this whole thing is because Jesus was very clear in his instructions to the apostles. Just wait. Don't do anything without the Holy Spirit. And that command is, is, is repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. The whole thing of waiting upon the Lord. The whole thing of, 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 of waiting for the Lord. But I want to ask you a question. Is waiting an easy thing to do? But maybe it's the most important thing sometimes we can do. Waiting on God is tough, but so often the number one tool God uses to shape us and form our character is waiting. Sometimes we think we are waiting when we're really not. Let me give you three examples of that. The first one I call red light waiting. Red light waiting. You get ever get to a red light and you're sitting there and you know you, you wait, you wait, but you're not really happy. You're waiting. You're going like, man, that light. When's it going to change? You gun your, you know, if you got one of those you know, cars, you know, with with that you can do this. You gun your engine, you know, or you're creeping up. And or the other day, I got back from Canada from fishing and went down to Peoria and. Now I wasn't here like five minutes and, and I got to this light down there on War Memorial and, and, and it was, I was on the front of the line there, you know, on, on one side and, and two lanes and, and this lady behind me, man, I don't know what her problem was, but I, I mean, I had not, the light had not changed for five seconds and I was just, you know, been in Canada, big fish, you know, I don't care. <laughs> I hope it wasn't one of you. If it was. I didn't think good thoughts about you. <laughs> but the issue is, is that we have, sometimes we think that's waiting. You know, we gotta, we gotta wait because we have no options. We could have an option. I guess we could break the law, right? But, uh, that's not an option for us generally. So we just wait and, we, but we're impatient while we're waiting. Another type of waiting sometimes that's really not waiting is, is it soup yet waiting? Is it soup yet waiting? You know, like you, you put something on, you're hungry, or maybe there's something in the oven, and instead of just leaving it alone, letting it cook, I mean, you open the oven door. What's that do to the, to, if you're baking pizza? What's, that's bad, you know? Why? Let's the heat out and it makes it longer. And you're constantly checking it and trying to do something with it. And you, you're waiting. Oh, is it ever going to be, it's going to be soup yet. It's kind of like that phrase I found out I was looking online. It's, it's, you know, that, that phrase, a watched pot never boils. That deals with this kind of impatience about not wanting to something to happen. We wait, but we really don't want to wait. Or another way, I call it bruised fruit waiting. Bruised fruit waiting is, is, is where we, you know, and, and the fruit has to grow. And, and, and the problem is sometimes if we keep touching it and see if it's ready, you know, if you, I used to grow tomatoes, don't do it anymore, but I used to, and, uh, and you go out and you, you fill up, you know, what'll happen if you, if you handle them too much, it'll bruise the fruit, right? You know, and, and this, this is what I call, this is when we want someone else to change. This is the kind of waiting we do when we want someone else to change. You would say, go, go on. And we know. You know, Scripture says, I don't know if you knew this, but Scripture says, it says that, that we can't change anybody else's heart. You didn't know that? Even by experience? It, it says in James 1.20, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, I don't know if you're, you like to consider yourself 
person who's wrathful. But I mean, it's if you want something to happen in somebody's life, you cannot make it happen. You can begin to pray for them. You can help them. But so often what we do is we want somebody to change in our life, our kids to change, our spouse to change, or our neighbor to change, or whoever else it is to change. And what happens is, is we get to the place where we simply, we just keep kind of badgering them. I don't use, like to use that term, but we just keep asking them, you know, like, like we can make it happen quicker. And God says, trust me in this. I'm the only one that can change somebody else's heart. See, waiting is the hardest thing to do, but one of the most important things for us to do. And the reason that God tells us this is because the first lesson he wants to teach the church, the first lesson he wants to teach us, this is the New Testament church, this is our church, as any church, that nothing important or good happens in our life without the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we try to do it ourselves, and we're impatient, we usually mess it up. The second thing, you're going like, that was your first point and it's already ten after? This last one's only going to take five minutes, I guarantee it, okay? Remember I left some verses out in the middle, verses six through nine. We're going back to those for just a moment. The second, the first lesson is this. Nothing happen, good happens in our life without the power of the Holy Spirit. The second, the second uh, thing that we're going to flesh out over the next several weeks, that's not why it's not going to take long today, because I'm just going to introduce this concept, is this. Our mission, the mission that God gives us as a church, is to witness, not simply be learners. Verse 6. Go back to verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him. Remember, they, he'd already told them to wait. When, so they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They kept asking Jesus this all the time. Are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. The, the reason the disciples were always asking this is because in their culture, they had lived under the oppression and uh, uh, under people for all these years. They wanted to be a time to be free. And so they constantly asked, when is the kingdom, kingdom coming? And they thought by God's kingdom, it meant that God was going to come and be a political ruler to, to overcome all the stuff that was there to free them up from all this junk in life they were having to deal with. They didn't understand what the kingdom of God is like. So when they thought the Messiah, they understood Jesus was the Messiah. He'd come, he leaves. They thought, okay, the kingdom of God is coming. We're not going to be under Roman rule anymore. We're not going to be oppressed anymore. This is going to happen. But they didn't understand what the kingdom of God, God was. Because God's kingdom, in a real sense, is God's rule in our hearts. See, the kingdom of God, and in our church today, in the American church, so often we think the kingdom of God, it's all about knowing. It's about knowing stuff, you know, knowing the Bible and knowing... That's why when I pray, when we started the day, when I pray, every time we pray, it's not about just knowing Scripture, knowing what to do, but that we apply it to our life because the kingdom of God is when we, our life becomes not only the knowing part, but we do what, the God, what God's Word says. That is when God's rule is in your life and in my life. See, we're not just going on a no journey as a church. It's about a do journey, the mission of being a witness. Because in verse 8, a key verse for the, all this whole first section, and this is what we're going to look at for the next several weeks, is this. It says in verse 8, but when you, 
It says, okay, that we don't know what's going to happen. This kingdom of God. Yeah, guys, I understand it's important to you. But here, let me give you the, let me give you the mission statement. Let me give you the purpose of why I'm going to sit you out and I'm going to give you this Holy Spirit power that's going to be in your life. Here's the mission statement. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Guys, it's, you know, it's not about coming to church on Sunday mornings and learning stuff and going home and going, man, you know, that was great music. Sermon was decent, you know. Or going to a small group and open this Bible and going, like, okay, yeah, that was really good. That, I'm really excited about that. Then doing nothing about it. The, the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming to our lives and God giving us empowering us is that we can give our life to the only mission that's worth living and dying for. That's the mission that God has given us of being the witness to Jesus Christ. You see, these early, these early folks, think about the folks that were gathered in this room with Jesus. Every one of them had a personal story of an interaction with Jesus Christ that had changed their life. Every one of them. And you see, witnessing is, is the direct overflow of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Witnessing is the direct overflow of your relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you've had a relationship and had an interaction with Jesus Christ that has changed your life, you are a person who is able to be a witness. And the Bible says there, how we witness is by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, witnessing should be as natural as breathing. But so often in the church, because so often it becomes difficult, we think it's more than that. We, we substitute things. You know, how often have you been to church? I hope you don't feel this today. This, you know, you go and you feel like I should witness because it's an obligation. I ought to do it because I'm a Christian and I'm joyful. Or you do it out of guilt. You know, you hear some measure, you know, if you really love the Lord. And so when people don't do it in the life of the church, it's not, we don't look at the issue, the real issue. The issue is, that the, is the Holy Spirit empowering their lives. The issue is we try to make up formulas. Like, you know, you know, formulas like, uh, you know, the Roman road or the four spiritual law. I'm not saying those are bad. But that's not all. We simplify, oversimplify witnessing to a formula. And it's about simply sharing what Christ has done for me and for you. I tell you this. The number one thing that you're an authority of in your life is what God has done in your life. Your story, you're an authority of. And God only asks you to share what you're an authority on. And if you had a relationship with Jesus Christ, you were able to witness. It's an outflow of sharing. And so often we, we, we make formulas or we make them up like programs. So I cannot tell you how many programs I grew up with in churches. You know, each one reach one. Uh, evangelism explosion. Friendship evangelism. You know what friendship evangelism is? This idea where you, you know, you, you know, if you really want to win somebody, what you do is you, the guys, you take your friend to a ball game, you know, for 10 years. You just hope that during the time, what it is, they figure out that, well, you know, you, you, you love Jesus and you like ball games. And they only like ball games, so maybe they should like Jesus. Maybe they'll, you know, connect the dots somewhere along the way. But that's that's not that's 
Maybe not the way that I should say that. But so often that we think that's all there is. Or, you know, we're going to have a muffin ministry in the church. Uh, you know, women, uh, you know, what we're doing is invite all your friends who like muffins to church. You know, and if you come bring them to church and they come into church and you all sit around eating muffins, you'll go after a while, they'll figure out, you know, where I like muffins and I like love Jesus. I love muffins. I love Jesus. But you only love love muffins. So maybe you should love Jesus too. Well, I just want to say to you, I mean, that's not that's not really witnessing. Witnessing is, is simply is simply God's spirit stirring in you a desire to tell others about your experience with Jesus Christ. And nothing substitutes for that. It's as simple as that. These were untrained. I mean, yeah, they'd been with Jesus for a period of time, but they were generally untrained, uneducated folks, who most of them were, who God said, hey, it's not about how many programs you have or how many, how many, how many uh, cute slogans you have. It's about the thing of God's Spirit coming into your life and doing something in you that you cannot do yourself. That's why you need to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And I want to share with you with this. If you are frustrated that your mouth is closed when you know it should be open, you need to ask yourself this question. Do I have a personal ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ that makes a difference in my life? And is God's Spirit really working in my life? Those are the two questions we should ask ourselves. Not do I need more formulas. Not do I need anything else. But is God's Spirit working in my life? Because the Bible says clearly here in Acts that when the, when the Holy Spirit comes in our life, he will empower me and he will empower you to be a witness to those around you. That's our mission. That's our purpose. And he ends up, Jesus wraps up the book of Acts, oh, this, this first chapter, or this section here, verses 9, 10, and 11. He says this, After this he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their, their sight. And they were looking, and these guys, you know, they're going outside. The, Jesus goes up in the cloud. And it says, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. And when suddenly two men dressed in white stood before beside them. And they asked him this question. I thought, this is kind of a weird question in the middle of all this. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And then I thought, you know what he's saying? What these guys are saying, these angels, I guess, are saying here, they're simply saying, hey, guys, apostles, he just told you your mission. He just told you not to wait until you get the Holy Spirit. But he's gone. Guys, he's gone. Guys, I've given you your mission. I've given you your purpose. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Here's the mission of being a witness. Get to work. Because the people of God, when empowered by the Holy Spirit literally are unstoppable. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.